Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. I know the big other doesn't exist. You know the big other doesn't exist. The analyzand all too often forgets, if they ever knew to begin with, that the big other doesn't exist. Which brings us to the discourse of the analyst. The discourse of the analyst is the primordial discourse out of which the other three turn. It's easy to start a discussion of the four discourses with the master, given its relation to the topology of the subject that Lacan is working up throughout the 60s, but it's important that we end with the analyst, knowing full well, nevertheless, that that is the primordial structure, the primordial discourse out of which the other three spin, as we heard in Seminar 20. Here's what it looks like. Objet A in the position of agent, barred subject in the position of other or addressee, with the arrow of address in place. And then you've got in the position of product, S1, and in the position of truth, S2. We could do worse than just focus on these four terms and unpack each of them. Each is pretty gnarly. Let's start as simply as we can and then unfold things from there. Objet A, Lacan tells us early in Seminar 17, and that's where we find ourselves, is a fallen and rejected, ever falling and repeatedly rejected figure of the big other. Now, that last part I'm adding to it, but I want to emphasize this, this point of rejection here. Little a in the position of agent is that of the reject, and I want to suggest that it is a rejected, dejected figure of the big Oh, other. We'll come to it when we come to it. That barred subject to whom the analyst speaks when they speak is the classic barred subject that you've heard so much about. Split between conscious and the unconscious. Split between enunciating and grammatical senses of self. This is your classic neurotic subject, the barred subject, the split subject about which we've learned so much already. S1 is where things get really interesting, in my view. This is a new narrative. It's a resubjectivization. It's a transformation of one's past into one's history. That's what's produced in the analytic discourse. We'll come to it. Hang tight. We're just getting the four terms laid out. S2, in the position of truth, is a kind of knowledge. But let's be clear. This is not an unconscious truth, but the truth of the unconscious. Knowledge of the truth of the unconscious. Knowledge of an unknown field of knowledge known as the unconscious for all who speak, including the analyst. Okay, let's start with the most challenging of concepts in the discourse of the analyst, I believe. That of this little a, this fallen and rejected figure 
of the big O other. And bear in mind, what I'm about to unfurl here is my reading of the Discourse of the Analyst, which I believe is true to Lacan's thought. Now, you may have heard different readings of the Discourse of the Analyst. Compare them to what you're about to hear and know full well that as I veer into more clinical discussions, I'm going to start leaning on folks whom I trust, who are practitioners of what I hear as a teacher am trying to bring to our attention. Lacanian thought and Lacanian technique. As we get into the discourse of the analyst, the temptation is to start talking a little more technical, a little more about technique. And so you'll hear me wherever possible, leaning on some secondaries that I think are really useful here. But take what you hear in the following and know that I'm not that kind of doctor. I'm just a reader of Lacan. That said, caveats aside, let's take some chances. Starting with the most elusive and the most contentious term here, which is little a in the position of agent, in the position of speaker. In the discourse of the analyst, little a as a reject is an accomplishment, you've heard me say. It's something to be achieved and achieved as a great success in the course of analysis. This is a good thing when little a can finally be realized as the reject. But I don't think it's the first thing that happens in analysis. Like I said, it's an accomplishment. It's an achievement as I read Lacan. And on my count, there are at least four steps, stages, to the realization of objet a as the reject in the position of the speaker in the discourse of the analyst. First and foremost, we have that figure of the big other as it occurs in analytic experience. Here is the analyst as the subject supposed to know. This is the analyst as perceived by the analyzant as whole, complete, all-knowing, omnip omniscient, omnipotent, in short, as the big other. This is a projection on the analyst's part. Something along the lines of, you're the doctor, now fucking fix me. You're the one with all the answers, now fix me. Allow me to keep going, in other words, with my current symptomatic life. Why aren't I enjoying my symptoms anymore? Fix me. Which doesn't mean, right, make me healthy, make me happy, make me, etc. Nah, it means help me get back to what I was doing before I realized that what I was doing was no longer fulfilling me in the way that it used to, driving me to analysis. Again, holding off on some of these more analytic technical points to keep close to what Lacan is up to here. This subject's supposed to know. We've talked about it a lot in previous series, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. Just to say that it's how the analyzant often perceives the analyst at the start of a therapy, at the start of an analysis. You're the doctor. You're the one with all the answers and the fancy degrees. Fix me. This is treating the analyst as a treasure trove of answers, of information, of clinical fixes. But I want to suggest that this position of the analyst as subject supposed to know, which is highly problematic, I want to suggest that analysts oftentimes enable this themselves. Why? How? By hanging their diplomas on the wall in fancy frames and gilded mats, by having 
a bunch of books on the shelf behind them where they sit, all of which read psychoanalysis or Lacan or Freud or something along the spine, all of the signifiers of linguistic and cultural capital that are strewn about the analyst's office. Think about this, little figurines, abstract paintings, works of art, I mean, this kind of shit. Yeah, I get it. You want your office to be a place that feels nice to you and is a reflection of you and that gets people thinking, perhaps. But listen, when you've got all those diplomas hanging up on the wall, don't be surprised when somebody walks through the door and treats you like an authority figure. That's the point. The issue here is that you see a very direct lineage from the Christian God, which we've spoken a lot about, to the philosopher's God, a direct inheritor, now to what I would call an analytic God. The subject supposed to know is an analytic God in that tradition from Christianity to philosophy to psychoanalysis. I want to emphasize too, hearkening back to some of our previous series, that this is a figure of the analyst as a demanding other. An other that doesn't lack, but instead experiences plenitude, has all the answers, knows themselves perfectly, has no unconscious, is just pure consciousness, and as a result, can issue demands. In other words, does not confront the analyzand with desire, but instead, as a subject supposed to know, knows, among other things, what needs to happen for an analysis to work, and thus can issue demands. For the neurotic we learned in our series on Seminar 10, this is a great relief. It's much safer to assume that the other is whole and thus can issue demands than to deal with the angsty fact that the big other doesn't exist and all you have are barred others which aren't demanding as a result but instead desirous or whose demands are always tinged with desire if that's more comfortable for you. The point here, though, is that the subject's supposed to know as a projection from the analyzand onto the analyst. It sets up the analyst as a demanding other, one to whom the analyzand could say, tell me what to do. Tell me how to live. Not just fix me, but tell me how to live a life so that I can remain fixed. Now, the truth of analysis, of course, is that you've already been fixed. That's part and parcel why you're here. It's because you're fixed, castrated, neutered, however you want to play with this. I don't want to go too far down there. This is just our first step toward that rejected objaya that we want to get to. The first step, though, is analyst as subject supposed to know. Big A, if you like your letters instead. The analyst must fall from this divine, omniscient, omnipotent position and ever in the direction, hear me now, of impotence, of incapacity, of inability in order for analysis to progress. The next step, as you no doubt probably have guessed, is a shift in the analyst position from that of a big other, a capital A, to a barred other, a capital A with a slash through it. This would be the transition from being a demanding other 
that can tell, and all too often does, tell the analysts and what to do, to a desirous other, an other that lacks. This is an important turn in the formation of the analyst in the discourse of psychoanalysis. Here, the analyzand's discourse changes in response to a shift in the analyst's position. It shifts from, tell me what to do, to, tell me what you want from me. Notice that slight shift. It's a shift away from the assumption that the analyst knows what needs to happen and could, as a result, just tell the analyst and what to do, to an emphasis on the desirousness of the analyst. What do you want from me? There's still that tinge of tell me what you want from me, but we're shifting in the direction now from a demanding other to a desirous one, one who lacks and thus wants things. And the enigmatic status of the analyst at this point awakens a question in the analyst's hand. What do you want from me? Tell me what you want from me, but fundamentally, what do you want? This opens the door to a more properly analytic agency for the analyst, not so much as a big barred other, presumably in search of wholeness, but a third step. Not a big barred other in search of completion, but a third step. A step away from the big barred other and other, as the title of Seminar 16 suggests, to the other, which is objet a. Here what you see is a more properly analytic position, closer to that of the reject. You're no longer a big barred other in search of wholeness and completion and the like, but instead you're the embodiment of an enigma, of a properly little a. And with it, something more akin to what we can call fantasy. Fantasy, a barred subject living their life in relation to what they think others want. At this point, fantasy would almost inevitably start popping. What do you want? What do you want from me? Tell me what you want from me. Tell me what to be relative to myself as a split, divided subject. Think back to our lectures on fantasy. How about an example? Simple stuff. Simple stuff. Simple stuff always at the risk of causing trouble. You used to take notes whenever I described my dreams, but now you're barely awake, motherfucker. Now, the motherfucker part, save that for the end. At this point, though, it's, I'm confused, dear analyst. Initially, I would come in here, tell you about my dreams, and you would take copious notes. You'd be scribbling over there, presumably in great interest. Now, when I tell you about my dreams, you barely seem to be awake. You're half nodding off over there. Seriously, what do you want from me, analyst? I thought I was supposed to talk about my dreams, but now apparently that's not what I'm supposed to do. What do you want from me? This is a trick. This is one that I can imagine as an analyst would be something very challenging to pull off. In other words, to constantly keep yourself, your status, your desire enigmatic, such that the analyzant is always wondering, what do you want from me at this stage? The trick here would be to keep the analyzant guessing, curious, 
inquisitive about the analyst's desire. What do you want from me? So the shift here, if you want to start mapping it out, is from capital A, as subject supposed to know, barred capital A, as the big barred other, which opens the door to desire, and a shift, a mobilization, if you will, of the analyst from a demanding other to a desirous other, that opens the door to a new question from the analyst's end. What do you want from me? And that, in turn, affords the analyst with the position of objet initially, as that of desirousness, as that of enigma, as that of someone whose desire is enigmatic, constantly shifting, unable to be pinned down. And I think that sounds like a lot of emotional labor. Doing that work of constantly keeping your desire enigmatic and keeping the analyzant guessing about this. But I don't think it's as difficult as the next phase. The next phase, as I read Lacan, is that you would now need to somehow redirect that curiosity from the status of the desire of the analyst to the desire and the curiosity of the analyzant for that desire of the other. Let me try and explain this. This would usher in a new version of obja. You might even call it like an obja2, such that the transitions here look something like this. Subject supposed to know, desirous big other, enigmatic desire of this desirous big other, and then this redirection from whatever it is the analyzant imagines you, dear analyst, might want to a question for themselves about why the fuck they're so curious about what it is that the analyst wants. Now, this would be a stepping stone towards something else, yet another stage in the phenomenology of analytic experience. And I think that's a pretty fine way to understand what we're talking about here. The shift from A to A to A to A to A that we're working at here, ever in the direction of rejection and impotence, it's a phenomenology in the Hegelian sense of phenomenology, not a hermeneutic phenomenology in the Heideggerian sense, but a classic phenomenology in the Hegelian sense. Somehow, in the shift from A, little a1 to little a2, the analyst needs to find a way to redirect the analyzant's curiosity and inquisitiveness back toward themselves. And that, again, to me, sounds like a very challenging task. No longer would the question be, what do you want from me? But instead, why am I so hung up on your desire? What is it about me that makes the enigmatic status of your desire, dear analyst, such a lure? Notice that shift from what to why. It's a shift from what do you want from me to why am I so hung up on this fantasy of you wanting something from me? It's a shift in direction away from the analyst and toward the analyzant. What is it about me 
that makes the enigmatic status of your desire such an interesting lure? Why am I constantly stumbling back into the question of what you want? Notice that shift away from the analyst as objah, as an enigmatic desire, to the question of the desire of the analyzand for access to an answer to the question of what the analyst might want. Here we see the analyzand earning their title as the one who does the analyzing. This is why we call them analyzand because they're the ones that do the work of analysis. And it's at this point that they really start engaging in that work. I believe this marks a profound shift from a desire for recognition from the analyst to an attempt to recognize one's own desire, one's own unconscious desire as a speaking subject invested in analytic experience. And that investment cannot be understated. The investment of the analyzand in this process is part of what I believe would energize them to make this series of turns, to tolerate this ever-shifting position of the analyst, and ultimately to do the work of turning the analysis on themselves. As time goes on, and I'm just guessing here, but always atop Lacan's work, these are informed guesses. I would expect that the analyzand's need for the analyst would wane. And ultimately, to such an extent, that analyst and analysis itself, and notice how Lacan puts this, would lose even the slightest significance. This would be the shift to a final A that would be analyst and analysis as reject. And A3, if you will, if you want to just keep this sequence going. Big other, big barred other, desire one, desire two, desire three, if you want to just keep unfurling this at the level of desire. Here, though, at the end, there is no desire for the analyst. There is no desire for the analysis. They take on the slightest significance as the analysis approaches its end. And I want to give you some Lacan. I told you that all this is a top Lacan. Where's the fucking Lacan, McCormick? All right, check it out. If you're in our series on 16, you've heard this riff before. It's straight out of Lacan's seminar on 16. From an other to the other. And notice how that title factors right into what we're talking about here. The an other from a big other... Lacan means here a big barred other. To the other is the shift from the barred capital A to the first objet A in this sequence that I'm tracing from you, for you. From an other, notice it's not from the big other. It's from an other to the little o other. That's the title of seminar 16. That's where this shit is coming from. I'm not just making this up. And to that end, I want to give you a weird and wonky passage from Seminar 16. You can track it down on your own if you want, but I believe this passage well resonates with Lacan's depiction of the analyst as the reject in the position of agency in the discourse of analysis 
that we see at the start of Seminar 17. It's from Lacan's 22nd lecture, so right toward the end of his previous seminar, Seminar 16, From an Other to the Other. Here's the passage. It is around the enigma, the questioning that remains here, about an act that cannot be initiated for the very one that inaugurates it, except by availing of what would be for it, I mean the one that inaugurates this act and specifically the psychoanalyst, its term. That sentence sucks. What a challenging sentence. Not surprisingly, we get a clarification in the next one. And not simply its term, but properly speaking, its end. What he is talking about here is the analytic act, the psychoanalytic act, right? And you can imagine where this is coming from, where seminar 15, just before 16 on the psychoanalytic act. And he's talking about the end of analysis, which has been a topic that we've queued up in this series since our work on Seminar 11, the end of analysis. It seems to be something that Lacanians are very keen on, conceptually and clinically, to try and figure out what the end of analysis looks like. I think it's just fabulous that we even talk about the ends of analysis. Because if you get into the mix with some psychotherapists, my understanding from a lot of folks I speak with is that there's some kind of interminable shit that's happening there oh, everyone can benefit from therapy. You just keep going and going and going and going. What I think is fabulous is psychoanalysis has this reputation for being a cash drain on the analyzand, a time drain on the analyzand. You're going in multiple times a week, et cetera, and it goes on forever. But here's the thing. It's in analytic theory and technique that we get some very powerful reflections and applications of the end of analysis very specific thoughts on how these things end, conclude. It's funny, my analysis took about seven years, maybe eight years, I think, and I still don't know how the damn thing ended. It's bizarre, it's over, it's over, and I still can't quite tell you how it happened. Back to this passage, and to the next sentence, which is quite a bit clearer on the end of analysis. The term Lacan is talking about here means coming to term, finding an end. Listen to this. And not simply its term, but properly speaking, its end, the end of analysis. Inasmuch as it is the term that determines retroactively the sense of the whole process, is properly its final cause, which does not deserve any derision, because everything that belongs to the field of structure is unthinkable without a final cause. Here you get a really nice application of that classic Lacanian habit of mind, where you always look at the cause as final, in the sense that the cause comes after the effect. The cause is at a later date that then reveals an effect in one's past. It has a retro-efficacy. Lacan puts it very well in many places. Not just retroactive, but retro-effective. That's what he's talking about here. The end of analysis is like a punctuation at the end of the sentence that allows you to look back on all the signifiers that preceded it and make sense of it all. 
you see how now this is a classic Lacanian way of thinking. It's this basic theory of how meaning coheres. It's at the end of the novel that you can look back and think about what it all means. It's at the end of the movie that you look back and understand, oh my gosh, he was dead the whole time. You see what I'm saying? There's this retrospective aspect of Lacan's thought that is always there. Here in the late 60s, it's around the figure of repetition, which we'll talk more about. Repetition for Lacan, you've heard me say, is retroactive. It repeats something from the past and in a way that affects that entity or event in the past anew, that transforms it into something repeated. That's the thing about repetition. It always retroactively designates an origin as the site for its repetition. But at the time of that event, there was no repetition involved. Repetition has a retro-efficacy. And he's saying the same thing here about the end of analysis. It's at its end that you can determine retroactively the sense of the whole process, of the whole analytic process. And that's really what we're talking about here. It's at the position of the reject that you can look back and see the very important evolution, the phenomenological unfolding of the position of the analyst from subject supposed to know to reject that's got to go. One final sentence from Seminar 16, and it gets to that last bit about the reject that has to go as opposed to the subject supposed to know. The only thing, Lacan continues, that deserves derision in terms described as finalistic is that the end is of the slightest use. Reading those last two sentences again so you can fully hear what he's saying. And not simply its term, but properly speaking its end. Inasmuch as it is the term that determines retroactively the sense of the whole process is properly its final cause which does not deserve derision because everything that belongs to the field of structure is unthinkable without a final cause. The only thing that deserves derision in terms described as finalistic is that the end is of the slightest use. Let me be clear. If emptiness is the opening song of analytic experience, uselessness is its coda. These are some terrific bookends for understanding what Lacan is doing from the start of an analysis that would begin with the empty speech of the analysand to this end moment, this coda of sorts, where you would see the incapacity, the inability, the uselessness of the analyst and the analysis. At the end of the treatment, Hear me now. Analyst and analysis should be of the slightest use and then even a little less. They should not even be of the slightest use, Lacan is telling us here, which is why I use the word uselessness. Emptiness is where we begin. Uselessness is where we end in Lacanian psychoanalysis. The discourse of the analyst occurs here. As the analyst falls from the big A to the barred A 
to little a1, little a2, and finally little a3 as the reject, that position of the reject that Lacan very directly says at the start of seminar 17 is the dominant position in the discourse of the analyst. The fall here again is from the subject supposed to know to the reject supposed to go. If you want to have like some kind of bumper sticker to attach to this sequence, this is what it means to put little a in the dominant agential position in the analyst discourse. The entire spectrum that I just traced out is right there in that upper left-hand quadrant. It's a process. It's a phenomenology where you earn rejection. It's a success when you and your practice can be rejected by the analyzand. I love that idea. Analyst as reject. Okay, this brings us to the addressee in the discourse of the analyst, this barred subject. In some sense, this is the easiest. Everything you've heard me say about the barred subject in previous series, it applies here. What matters most, or at least what I find most illuminating about this placement of the barred subject in the position of addressee, is that it shows the work of the analyst to be one of hystericizing the analyzant. Now think back to what you know about the discourse of the hysteric. It's good to hold that in mind as we're getting to this point of addressivity in the discourse of the analyst. The dominant agential position in the discourse of the hysteric is the barred subject. And what Lacan is suggesting when he says that the analyst does their job when addressing the barred subjectivity of the analyzant, what he's trying to suggest there is that you hystericize them. You invite them to assume the position of the hysteric and to speak and to respond from that position. Let's be clear. The analyst doesn't address the part of you that likes to play professor, nor the part of you that likes to play master, but instead the part of you that defies both of these illusions. These illusions of self-identical completion, certainty, and consistency that we have characterized as endemic to the discourse of the master and the discourse of the university. Each of them gets off on the illusions of self-identity, completion, wholeness, certainty, and consistency. The analyst doesn't take that shit. In the discourse of analysis, they point their direction, their aim is precisely at the parts of self that do not lend themselves to these completions, certainties, and consistencies. What bollocks the master is also what befuddles the professor. The ever-present, ineradicable activity of an unknown field of knowledge known as the unconscious. That's what fucks with both of them. What fucks with the university is also what fucks with the master, namely the unconscious. And it's precisely there that the analyst directs their inquiry. The discussion is always coming back to that part of one's subjectivity, the part that is split between things you're aware of at the level of the ego and things you ain't aware of at the level of the unconscious. The discourse of the analyst aims right for that crack 
the very crack that the university and the professor try to ignore, which is also the very crack that the hysteric embraces. So you can see this allegiance between the master and the university on one hand and the analyst and the hysteric on the other. This is what I mean when I also say that the analyst activates the hysteric. What is the result or the product of this addressivity? And this, I believe, is where things get interesting. What's that S1 doing down there in the position of product in the discourse of the analyst? The S1 that Lacan places in the lower right-hand quadrant of the discourse of the analyst is a new narrative, a resubjectivization of oneself, a coming to terms with one's past in such a way that one's past becomes one's history instead. Now, if you've got ears to hear, I'm almost directly quoting from Lacan's mid-1950s manifesto of psychoanalysis, where he claims this is the basic discovery of psychoanalysis from Freud forward at the technical level. The transformation of one's past into one's history, not the past that is constantly bogging you down and intruding on your life, but instead a history that you have metabolized narrated, in which the past now has a place and has terms assigned to it. That's what I mean when I say a coming to terms with one's past. A re-narrativization of one's past in a way that transforms it into your history. Part of what made you and the part of what made you that you own. There's a kind of ownedness here, if you like Heidegger. Here what you see again is retroaction, the retroactive work and product of saying it again and saying it better in the course of the talking cure known as psychoanalysis. Emphasis again on the talking part of this, coming to terms, saying it again, saying it better in this talking cure. Remember, empty speech is the opening song of analytic experience as far as Lacan is concerned. Also, almost a direct quote from the same essay. And this puts speech, empty and full, center in analytic experience. The work of speech is going to be retroactive when analysis does its job. Retroactive because it allows the subject in a here and now to go back to a then and there and reclaim what nevertheless won't let them go. Reclaim one's past as one's history. That's what S1 fundamentally means. It means that you are re-narrating your sense of self, coming to terms with all the shit that has occurred up to that point. That coming to terms is symbolized here by S1. Not because you're becoming the master, but because you're adopting what Lyotard would call maybe a master narrative. You're coming up with a new master narrative for yourself. The nuts and bolts of this new narrativization, if we can call it that, with this other wonky word that Lacan uses in that essay that I think is still quite good though, resubjectivization, that's a great one here. Remember, Language subjugates and subjectifies us. 
And yet, when mobilized in the field of analytic experience, language is also the very thing that allows for a resubjectivization through this re-narrativization of one's past that transforms it, transfigures it into one's history. The nuts and bolts of this process are important. And they're worth noting, especially given where Lacan begins Seminar 17, namely with his foundational theory of the signifier as that which represents the subject to another signifier. Now, we typically write this in ways that you've already seen. There's an S1 over a barred subject with an arrow pointing to S2. This is also the basic boilerplate that Lacan would use to assemble the discourse of the master by simply adding objet a in the lower right-hand quadrant. There you have the discourse of the master. But it's important here because that linking between the S1 and the S2 is part and parcel of the resubjectivizing process that occurs in analytic experience. We write it like the topology of the subject that we develop from Lacan's hypothesis in the early 60s that the signifier is what represents the subject to another signifier. With the idea being that the subject, this is review, so you should already know this, is a retroactive effect of S1 linking up with S2. In short, a retroactive effect of language, of the symbolic, as a differential system of signifiers, S1s and S2s, and S3s and 4s and 5s, in and by which we're always subjugated and subjectivized, exactly as we've been discussing it here and in our previous lecture series. Nothing new is happening at this point. What I'm suggesting is that part of what's cracking in the lower right-hand corner of that discourse of the analyst where you see S1 is this entire topology of the subject where S1 links up with S2 and together as language, they do the retroactive work of designating a subject, a subject that is a mark left in the living individual, as we've established here at the start of seminar 17. Here, in the discourse of the analyst, by way of the hysteric, all of this occurs. And in a way that's fundamentally, or at least analytically, liberating. That's a risk, but it's something I want to say and something that I firmly believe. This is a liberating move. This resubjectivization by way of the hystericization of the analyzand is a liberatory project. But again, why take it from me, just a measly, old, dejected professor, when you can hear it from the one, the only, my brother from another mother, Bruce Fink. I wish I knew his middle name so I could put his middle name in there too when I announce his arrival. I think that his reading of this process, this production of S1 in the discourse of analysis, is extremely good and totally spot on. Let me see what we have here. The best read that I have found in his work on this is in the Lacanian subject, and it starts on around page 135 and goes to 136. If you don't have a copy of this book, it's one definitely worth getting your hands on. 
I'm just going to thread some of his words together to give you a sense of how this occurs, this resubjectivization that the S1 in the position of product designates. The analyst discourse, according to Fink, is one in which the analyst interrogates the subject in his or her division. That's where you see that arrow pointing from the reject to the barred subject. The patient, in a sense, coughs up a master signifier that has not yet been brought into relation with any other signifier. So Fink really wants to read that S1 as a master signifier, as something new that pops up in the discourse of analytic experience. As it appears concretely, in the analytic situation, a master signifier presents itself as a dead end, Fink continues, a stopping point, a term, a word, a phrase that puts an end to association, that grinds the patient's discourse to a halt. So the S1 that pops up, according to Bruce, is something that brings the discourse of the analyzand to a halt something they stutter, stammer, stumble upon. It could be a proper name, he suggests, perhaps the patients or the analysts. It could be a reference to the death of a loved one, the name of a disease, perhaps AIDS, cancer, psoriasis, blindness. What a lineup. Great lineup, man. AIDS, cancer, psoriasis, and blindness. It seems like there should be a Disney movie featuring all four of these characters. Or any variety of other things. The task of analysis, Bruce continues, is to bring such master signifiers into relation with other signifiers. That is, to dialectize the master signifiers it produces. That dialectization of the S1 relative to other signifiers is precisely what we mean when we draw an arrow from S1 to S2 and establish a link between these differential signifiers in the topology of the subject. That is a bringing of signifiers into dialectical relation with each other. The term I prefer here, because I believe it's more pre precise and truer to Lacan's thought, is differential. It is a differential relation that is established between an S and another S, marked in their difference by a one and a two one signifier to an other signifier. It's a differential relation. What Bruce is trying to get at here when he emphasizes the dialectical process is that they're mobilized. They're brought together in a way that loosens up the first in its connection to the second. This S1 that previously halted the analyzand speech can actually be an enabler of additional, more profound, narrativizations, when it's linked up and dialectized with other signifiers, it kind of thaws it, it puts it back into a fluid state. It defrosts the master signifier. That involves reliance upon the master's discourse, Fink continues, or as we might see it here, recourse to the fundamental structure of signification, 
A link must be established between each master signifier and a binary signifier such that subjectification takes place. There it is. That's the topology of the subject. You have a link between a master signifier and S1. Now, I think it's more complicated than that, as you've heard, but we're reading from Bruce's um, account here. To a binary signifier, that's what the S2 indicates. Don't think binary in terms of opposition, yet another reason why the dialectical image kind of falls flat for me. Think of it as simply establishing a relation that is twofold, binary. There are two elements here. It's a bi-relation that is happening at the level of the foundational ingredients to have a language, to have a symbolic, to have signification. And what he's saying here is that link between the S1 and the S2 is what enables the subject to emerge. Nothing new here. Just a different way of accounting for the topology of the subject that is so relevant here and so implicit in what Lacan's doing with that S1 in the position of product in the discourse of the analyst. This is where things get interesting. Page 136 of the Lacanian subject I want to read the final paragraph that Bruce offers on the discourse of the analyst, because I think it does a terrific job from someone whose opinion as a clinician I very much trust of accounting for the discourse of the analyst. Thus, the analyst, by pointing to the fact that the analyzand is not the master of his or her own discourse, instates the analyzand as divided, between conscious speaking subject and some other subject, speaking at the same time through the same mouthpiece as agent of a discourse wherein the S1s produced in the course of analysis are interrogated and made to yield their links with S2s. Just as in the hysterics discourse, he adds. Clearly the motor force of the process is objet a, the analyst operating as pure desirousness. So it's interesting. What he's doing here is he's saying that when the analyst hystericizes the analyzand, that objet a that you see in the position of truth in the discourse of the hysteric is redoubled, linked up with the position of a that you see in the discourse of the analyst a kind of pure desirousness that motors this process, that moves it forward. I think this is a great image to have of how this thing is going to unfold. Here, in the discourse of the analyst, it's by way of the hysteric that all of this is going to occur. This dialectization of S1s in relation to S2s, other signifiers that allow for a new master narrative, a new narrative for your life to emerge. It's by way of the hysteric, I think Bruce is precisely right, that this occurs. And in a way that is fundamentally, or at least analytically, again, I want to emphasize this, liberating. But again, we've heard it from Bruce. Let's see what we can add to this by way of conclusion to this lecture on the discourse of the analyst. I love the image of an analyzand hystericized, re-narrating their past and re-subjectivizing it as their history. 
I also think it's a bit ideal. Ideally, this is what would happen. This is how the discourse of the analyzand as that of the hysteric would unfold in response to the analyst, in response to the analytic situation. However, it's way easy to imagine something else occurring, an alternate, far less productive turn of events than a coming to terms with one's unconscious desire, as the discourse of the analyst hopes. What if, instead, the hystericized analyzand plays the part of the hysteric more dutifully, precisely as the discourse of the hysteric, in other words, apart from that of the analyst. What if, in response to being hystericized by the analyst, the neurotic goes on to play the part of the hysteric and truly, to the letter, follows the discourse of hysteria? You heard me pursue this possibility, or at least present it in some earlier lectures, and it seems to me to be a serious likelihood in the discourse of the analyst. Here you would see the hystericized analyzand replying to the hystericizing analyst by calling them out as master, just as a hysteric would. Not re-narrativizing their past and all that shit, but instead taking that S1 that is produced and saying, and that's you, motherfucker. You're the one playing master now, the hystericized patient would say. Exactly as the discourse of the hysteric does with any authority figure. This, I believe, is all the more reason for the analyst to play deaf, dumb, and dead. In other words, precisely as the reject, again and again. And that bit about being deaf, dumb, and dead is also straight from Seminar 16. Lacan outlines this as a basic sensibility a persona, better yet, an ethos, an image of the analyst reflected back on them by the analyzand. The analyzand should understand the analyst as deaf, dumb, and dead. In other words, as a reject. That's crucially important here because I think it would do the work of diffusing this hysterical return where the hysteric now turns back to the analyst and says, ah, so you're the master and you think you know everything. Oh, aren't you fucking clever? Let's see just how clever you are. And suddenly you've got a backfire. The discourse of analysis no longer produces the happy re-narrativization of the subjects past as their history, but instead awakens a sense of mastery, a sense of, which I expect is quite normal, resistance. Resistance from the neurotic to this move. All the more reason for the analyst to show up as deaf, dumb, and dead. In other words, rejected again and again. And speaking of primary truths, how about that S2? You know what I'm talking about, the S2 in the lower left-hand quadrant of the analyst's discourse. We covered all the other three terms. We gotta cover the S2 too. What is this S2 doing down there? S2 in the position of truth, in the discourse of the analyst, is knowledge of the truth of the unconscious, you heard me say. 
But I want to add one more thing here at the end. It's a hidden knowledge. It's a hidden knowledge of the truth of the unconscious. Notice that juxtaposition of knowledge and truth. It's something Lacan is very keen on at this point in his thought. Yet another reason to question the analytic practice of filling one's office with everything other than signs of rejection. Here what I'm talking about are framed diplomas, shelves of books with Lacan's name on the spine, every other trapping you can imagine of linguistic and cultural consumerism, the abstract work of art on the wall, the aboriginal figurine on the desk. You get the idea. You've seen pictures of Freud's office. The danger in showing up with all of these signifiers of linguistic and cultural consumerism, I really want to emphasize that, is profound. How can you play the reject when you're surrounded by shelves of books and fancy diplomas and all these indicators that you are anything but that? All of this, if you follow Lacan's thought, suggests a certain type of analyst. The analyst with the diplomas and the books and the figurines and all this shit strikes me, and here I'm just working with what Lacan gives us, as an analyst who has not given up on surplus jouissance in order to, as Lacan puts it, proffer the psychoanalytic act. And I'm more or less quoting from the end of chapter 3 in Seminar 17, that passage, I believe, on page 53 that we've discussed. How can the analyst proffer the psychoanalytic act when they're surrounded by so many objects of linguistic and cultural consumerism, the function of which can only be the generation of surplus jouissance? It's to this topic, which you've heard me say is the central topic of these early chapters of Seminar 17 that we now turn. Namely, once more, to the topic of jouissance. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. 